there's no doubt I have a predisposition to depression. Um, but I think ultimately the main thing was probably a crisis of meaning um, that I was busy and outwardly successful and ticked the boxes, but it wasn't quite, um, you know, it, it didn't really resonate from a sense of purpose. And so that was, I guess, one of the really key elements of writing the first book was how do I use this experience and share other people's experience to help others? And that really helped, you know, having that sense of um, mission to complete it. And it was bigger than me. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome to this episode of Better Thinking Podcast. Before we get into it, I want to tell you about our recruiting for strategic psychology is open for 2020. So if you're a registered psychologist or a clinical psychologist and you want to work as part of a larger team, get in contact with us. Go to nationaclick.com or strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers for all the information there. Guest for the podcast is Graeme Cohen, who is an incredible man who's gone through a journey of depression and major depression, depressive episodes, um, one in particular leading to uh, suicidal ideation and we go into, into that in quite, quite detail. He talks about his research and his journey as to finding out what is it that is missing uh, in the workplace in particular around resilience. And this episode is really about what he's learned and some of the uh, lessons he's put, put together in training others or teaching others or exploring with others, um, particularly within, within workplaces, about how they can go out and do self-care um, for themselves so they don't find themselves in a situation like he did himself. So, so it, it, it's one worth listening to. There's a lot of suggestions and ideas along the way, so make sure you listen through all the way to the end. Welcome back to Better Thinking Podcast. I'm very excited to have Graham Cowan here as our guest today to talk about his lived experience, um, both in terms of his life and, and the amazing work that he does in resilience training uh, these days and being a board director and uh, help starting the Are You OK phenomenon that I know everyone's and aware of, and it's done exceptional work. It, it, it's an absolute pleasure to have have you on the uh, show today, Graham. So thank you for coming along. My pleasure, Nish. Really lovely to join you. Tell me a little bit about uh, your story, if that if, if if that's okay. Obviously, there's a few hats that you wear at the moment. Uh, you know, it kind of jumped out at me in doing my research to getting guests on the show. And you know, there, I think there's a, a some nice. Um, uh, stories that that I suppose have have come out of your journey of hope, at least the the, the way that I look at it. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about you and how you got to to, to this um, point. Yeah, sure, Nish. Um, I had a great childhood growing up in Taree in the north coast of New South Wales, and I uh, was a real country boy. Um, uh, you know, had a great life there in terms of sport and school and friends 
came down to Sydney to go to university and um, that was a big change because I'd been a, a big a little a big fish in a little pond in, in Tari and then being a little fish in a big pond in the university in Sydney. And to be honest, that's when I had my first um, bout of depression, even though I didn't know what that was. I was 21 years old, um, you know, I guess a little bit... Um, Isolated, oh, no, not so much isolated, but just feeling a bit lost, I think, feeling a bit lost. And uh, I had a bad episode then, um, but I didn't even know what to call it then. You know, we didn't even discuss it as depression then. Why do you think it was difficult to even uh, recognise it as that? So, I mean, obviously on reflection you call it that, but back then uh, it wasn't something that uh, you could kind of uh, put your finger on. No, well, this goes back a while. Like I'm, I'm, I'm 61 now, so this goes back to, you know, 1977, and um, there was nothing like Beyond Blue or Black Dog or anything like that. Um, it just wasn't known. I, I, I honestly hadn't heard of it, and uh, luckily I got over it um, spontaneously. And and then in my life, I've had this sort of, I guess, cycle where I've had you know, good success at work, but I've also had these times where I got stressed and had, you know, some really bad episodes. Um, and I've probably had five major episodes of depression in my life and, and, and the really worst one started in 2000 and I was in a senior leadership role with a management consulting company and the business really collapsed around the tech crash at that time. and uh, and. And I really collapsed. And even though I'd had episodes of depression before, this was a, a whole another ballpark. So, you know, I really thought I'd tried everything. I, I was went through lots of different types of medication. I went through trying different types of psych, psychotherapy. Um, I had shock treatment, um, you know, hospitalizations, even suicide attempts. and. Um, and I was really 110% convinced that I, I wouldn't get better. I, I, really, I really lost a complete hope. And it was just, I guess, fortuitous. Um, during that time, my, I lost my job, my marriage broke up, and I became estranged from my kids. But I, I did have amazing support for my parents. And uh, I went and lived with them for probably about 18 months. It was um, in a coastal town called Tari, oh, sorry, Foster. And um, I did gradually come back from that. And it, was a, it wasn't any quick recovery. There was good care, but it was really resolving to walk every day was a really key component for me. It was, you know, reconnecting with family and friends because I'd really isolated myself. I felt really ashamed as many people do when they're going through that sort of struggle and um and then I was able to embrace meditation and I tried to meditate when I was depressed but just wasn't able to do it but because I'd sort of bounced back a bit in terms of my mood I was able to meditate and that's become a really regular ritual for me and uh it's not the only thing but it's it's a really pivotal component of my well-being is regular meditation and I gradually came out of it. And then I had this idea to write my first book, which was called Back from the Brink. And uh, 
I interviewed, this was an Australian version, so I interviewed, you know, some well-known Australians, people like the ex-West um, Australian Premier Jeff Gallup, a couple of Olympic gold medalists, uh, Patria Thomas and John Conrad's, the icon of the art world, uh, Margaret Olley, who's since passed away, and Australia's most famous poet, Liz Murray, who's also um, unfortunately passed away. Mm. And I, I had um, John Brogdon, the former um, New South Wales uh, opposition leader, launch it. He's now the chairman of Lifeline. And the book did really, really well. I think it had well-known people. And I did a whole lot of interviews um, around that. And that led to me, people asked me to come and talk. And ironically, it was often in regional areas. And what I came to understand was that, um, you know, people in those communities often don't have regular or easy access to psychologists like you or psychiatrists especially. Um, and they often really yearn for it. And, you know, there were some amazing events. Like I remember going to a, an event at Gundawindi, you know, near the border of New South Wales and Queensland. Little town, I don't know, about 3,000 people, you get 600 people turning up uh, wow. to an event. And, um, and I had a corporate career. I worked with Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer and then A.T. Carney and Morgan and & Banks. And, and probably about eight or nine years ago, I went to the corporate world and said, want to talk about, you know, resilience, stress, well-being, depression and Everyone back then said, oh, we don't have any problems with that. You know, no issues whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't exist here. <laughs> it doesn't exist. No one's stressed. You're just answering it. Um, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but um, as you'd be aware, there's been a lot of change. Particularly in the last five years, there's been recognition, not just of the, the cost of it, and that's probably, sadly, something that's had a huge impact is working out the huge cost involved in employee distress, but also working out the cost in terms of the ability to change an organisation, the ability to be more productive. And so it has really resonated. And so over the last five years, I've really made an evolution towards working with leaders and teams on how they can be more caring, resilient and growth oriented. And I really believe that um, future-ready leaders have to build resilient teams. And uh, the first component of that is being resilient yourself and learning how to be mm. more resilient yourself um, and then how to foster an environment that builds team resilience and, uh, and then also knowing how to help someone who's struggling and Along that journey, and it was really after my, well, 10 years ago, um, Gavin Larkin, who had the idea for starting Are You OK, heard about my book and said, oh, you know, I'd like to talk about being part of an ambassador for Are You OK? And when I heard about it, I just knew intuitively that it was the right strategy because I knew how important the support of my parents was to my recovery, and I just felt that you know, building up the skills and knowledge of those surrounding those who were struggling was a really important um, missing component. And uh, that's proven to be correct. You know, we've just um, been blown away by how the reach and impact of Are You OK has grown. And we just had recent figures back from 2019. 
and found out that 87% of Australians are aware of Are You OK? And um, 28% participated in an Are You OK? event this year, you know? So it's just amazing. It's phenomenal. Um, it's amazing. Something that strikes me so, so much about your story is he, he's someone who on the outside has gone out and, and, you know, climbed the ranks as an impressive organisations, you know, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, you know, as an executive on the outside appears that everything's going, you know, well. And, and you know, we all know, you know, air quotes, executives are doing well. You know, they're, they're the leaders. So they must be therefore managing and, 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 and uh, you know, they're, they're the top ones who are, who are managing and coping well. Yet here's an experience of, of you know, major depression and, and I'm not sure whether this is accurate in your story, but your marriage broke down, you lost your job, you became estranged from your kids. Is that all as a result of, of the major depression, the, 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 the episode? Is that kind of the, the uh, fallout of, of what, what happens when, when it gets that dark? Yeah, that, it was certainly a huge contributor. I don't think you'd say it's entirely the issue, but, you know, it was a major, major contributor. Um, and it is, you know, it's almost surreal talking about those years now because when you're in that space, you know, it just things just seem so hopeless um, and you just think very much in black and white terms. You don't see possibilities. Um, and... You know, it is like a shutdown. It is like a shutdown. And mm. it is so important that people do really um, keep up rituals to keep themselves in what I call the green zone, which is a positive mood because, and you would know this, um, Nesh, from your work, that it's, it's actually easier to stay in the green zone than to try and climb out of the red zone. Mm. It's mm. easier, it's cheaper, it's quicker. And yeah. um, we can get lost in the busier life, in the busyness of life. But my real message to everyone um, is that, you know, self-care isn't selfish. We can't help others if we don't look after ourselves. And it's not big changes we need to make in our lives. It's little consistent rituals that are really important to, mm. you know, staying in a positive mood. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, the sometimes our focus is on what do we do when we're in the red zone, rather than uh, you know identifying what what are we doing when we're in the green zone that keeps us in the green zone, um, because it's a whole different trajectory and a whole different effort level of effort to try and climb out of the red zone. Um, would it be okay, uh, Graham, if I were to share um, the letter that you wrote? Uh, I know yeah. that it's been sort of published, but uh, is that something that I can um, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, share with the listeners? And this is, the, the, this is really for listeners' benefit to try and appreciate what does it look like um, being in, in, in the red zone. And um, so this is a letter that obviously you, you, you wrote at one of your darkest times, which is a suicide letter. Um, and if you just bear with me, I'll just, talk, I'll, I'll just read it. Um, it says... My dear family, after five, sorry, after four long years of battling with this illness, I just can't take it anymore. I feel I have tried everything 
and just can't see anything but a depressed future. I would like to thank everyone for the loving care you have all shown me. I couldn't ask for anything more. Please don't blame yourselves in any possible way for this as there is nothing possibly that you could have done. Love always, Graham. P.S. I just can't be a burden any longer. It's a very powerful letter. There's a lot of hurt in me. Yeah, it's, um, you know, as I said, it's quite surreal. Um, when I think back to that time, it was just so palpable, real and hopeless. But, you know, I had published that letter in my first book, which came out 12 years ago. So it had been in the public domain all that period of time. But um, as you know, Nesh, I decided to, even though it had been in the public domain, I decided to share it on LinkedIn this year on World Suicide Prevention Day. And I decided to do that for two reasons. One was I felt that there were probably people that could be feeling really uh, distressed and vulnerable and just to know that someone else once felt like that but now has a really meaningful and full life. And then the second thing was just to really prompt people to say, you know, if you think your loved one could be in this place, don't hesitate but to ask, are you okay? Um, Because that conversation could change your life. And I didn't know what would happen when I put that on um, LinkedIn and Facebook, but it went, as you know, it went viral. It had 70,000 comments and views in 18 hours. And um, the overwhelming message, which I guess just really gave me greater resolve in the work that I do, is that People wanted to see change in the workplace and the community. They wanted to have, they wanted to see more authenticity. They wanted the chance to be themselves. They want to be able to talk about what's really going on. And I think, you know, particularly in the workplace, there's a lot of this putting on the mask and, um, you know, having a, a positive face. And there's many, like, I don't want to say that work is all bad. Like, I, I truly believe on the, well-being benefits of, uh, of work. But, um, uh, you know, but, but, but overwhelmingly people wanted to see this um, change. They really wanted to see that, um, there, there, that there was a greater level of transparency and talking about that. So, mm. um, as I said, I didn't know. And it, it, ended up, it ended up being picked up by the ABC journalist asked me, you know, your letter just seemed really coherent um, and um, was, it a, was it a spur of the moment thing? But no, it wasn't. It, it was something I, I had literally felt that my life had no hope for about 18 months and so I, I thought about it a lot. So anyway, it's, it's a period that... Um, is hard to imagine, but you know, if, if you have any of the listeners that have been there or somewhere like that, 
um, you know, I just want people to know, and that's why I wrote my Back from the Brink books, is that, you know, there is a, a great life, um, a meaningful life. And I think often we find our purpose and our lessons from some of the toughest things we go through, and that was certainly the case for me. That's what was so... Um... Uh, attractive in in reaching out to to invite you to the show is that here's this situation where you know there's such great and immense despair uh, and you know there's a really a story of hope that 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 that's come out of this you know i think i read that uh you know the the treating psychiatrist at the time you know uh, spoke about um how your depression is one of the most severe he had, he had seen and you had tried, you know, everything and anything under the sun and, and, and you were, you know, uh, uh, motivated, engaged to try and, and feel better and get better and, and, and work on it. Um, yet here we are, you know, at this point of this letter is, you know, four years on, you know, that, that's not four years without trying. That's that, that, that's giving it your all and, and feeling kind of that you've got no, nothing more to give and that it's not going to get any brighter yet. Here we are having this conversation that uh, you know, you've been able to you know, come back from the brink as the title of your book says. Um, you know, one, one of the things that uh, I'd like to hear more about is, is, is upon reflection now, you know, what, what do you think it is that that brings us back from or, or could potentially bring someone back from the brink? What, what have you learnt from this journey? What have you learnt from talking with others? Um, you know, what does your experience being part of the, you know, are you okay phenomena? Uh, what, what has all of this taught you? What, what have you learnt about how workplaces, you know, discuss, uh, you know, mental health or resilience, uh, you know, I'd love to hear your views. Yeah, you know, I think um, one of the things about going through that really dark time is really reflecting a lot about yourself and what's important to yourself. And every, every person is individual. Um, so I did a lot of reading and I did a lot of assessments and that sort of thing because I've been in recruiting before and so I really valued some of the insights that come from strengths profiles and values profiles and um, and that type of thing. And I think ultimately, in retrospect, and, you know, I, there's no doubt I have a predisposition to depression, um, but I think ultimately the main thing was probably a crisis of meaning, um, that I was busy and outwardly successful and, tick the boxes, but it wasn't quite, um, you know, it, it didn't really resonate from a sense of purpose. And so that was, I guess, one of the really key elements of writing the first book was how do I use this experience and share other people's experience to help others? And that really helped, you know, having that sense of um, mission to complete it, and it was bigger than me. And that also then very easily segued into helping to start Are You Okay and seeing that happen. 
How do you think you lost that direction? I think uh, watching one of your videos, you, you said something like, you know, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. You know, it's kind of like until, until you kind of, it dawns on you or, or, or you get knocked about that you can't see that, that, that anymore. You know, how, how did you, how did you get lost and then kind of realize that you've lost your, your direction or your purpose or your, 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 your compass? I, I, in the, you know, that really bad episode, I think I just, um, you know, I, there was this unease. I wasn't quite well with myself, but I decided that the solution was to keep pushing and to try and push through the pain barrier and not really seek help or, you know, discuss it well. And I know back then, for example, I I had friends, but they weren't friends that I had what I would call meaningful conversations, um, you know, where you have vulnerability and that sort of thing. And I think that was a really key element. And and so you, you keep on pushing, 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 and then the stress and depression sits in, and then you start to lose sleep. And when you're not sleeping well combined with the, the stress, this just compounds and compounds and compounds. And then you're the sort of this, you know, really stressed, but you can't sleep and tired, but you can't sleep. And it's this compounding a thing. And I didn't really recognise the signs to prevent it. You know, it was a proverbial boiling frog when by the time you knew it was too late. And I think a really important element now of self-care is being able to recognise those early warning signs, being able to take corrective action, being able to, um, you know, uh, um, know, decide they're going to pull back. I'm going to make sure that I... If I've stopped meditating, that I am going to get back into meditation, that I'm going to get my morning walks in, in nature. Um, but, you know, what I've evolved to, um, and it might be just worth mentioning this because um, it works for me and it's what I talk about in, in my workshops, is I tell people you should act like a VIP. And what that means is there's three components of well-being or resilience in terms of the research I've done. And the first thing is V for vitality. So this is our physical health, you know, getting enough exercise, getting um, good sleep and good nutrition. So that's the, the vitality side of it. The next part, the I, is for intimacy, our emotional health, our relationships, and making time, regular time, for the people that are good for us. You know, we all have people in in our life that suck the life out of us. <laughs> but what about those people that are good for us, you know, be it our spouse or partner, be it our friends, be it our family. And um, I think what really galvanised me about the importance of this was something called the Harvard Grant Study, which is the longest wellbeing study ever done. You know, they monitored 240 so for more men, because this is 1929. Followed them, well, they've been following them ever since, and that's now 75 plus years. Wow. And um, there's now just, I think, about 20 alive. But I mean, there's a TED talk on it, but the, they have terabytes of information on all these, all this group that followed every year. They've got interviews with them, their family. And their one conclusion is those that have 
the longest life, the most affluent life, the longest sex life, um, the most meaning in life are those that have caring and supportive relationships and good caring and supportive relationships. So that's why the I is so important. And the, and the final part, P, is for prosperity. And this is our contribution energy or well-being or resilience. And this happens through the work we do throughout the community, the work we do in our vocation, the work we do in our charity work, the work we do, you know, working for schools or sporting teams or whatever. And we need to, I, I, I talk about that being each of those components, the VIP, as being like three glasses of water. And it's like they're sitting outside in the sun. And if we don't actively top it up, they continually evaporate. And we have to have each of those glasses full. We can't, we can't, um, you know, be fine in one and empty in one or two others. We really need to strive to top them up regularly. And so acting like a VIP is consciously thinking each day about how am I topping that up? You know, am I getting in my 30-minute walk each day? Am I, having a, am I having a call with what I call my care crew, you know, those people that have my best interests in heart, that I feel better being with? And, you know, whether it's, um, you know, a five-minute phone chat or, you know, a catch-up for a coffee or a beer or whatever. And then in my work, am I living to my purpose? Am I living to my purpose? Am I using my strengths to the best of my ability? And, you know, on that peer prosperity side, there's just lots of evidence that show that if you do have that sense of purpose, if you are able to uncover that sense of purpose and use your strengths to put it into action, um, you know, all the research shows that that does also lift our motivation. It lifts our sense of well-being. Um, so all those three things together are critical. And in my workshops, I have, you know, a VIP snapshot, um, self-care snapshot, where there's five questions in each of those three categories, the vitality, the intimacy, and the prosperity. And so people can readily see which is their emptiest glass. And I just say, well, you know, as you think about things I talk about today and you think about one action you might take from today, think about your emptiest class because that's probably the best place to start. It's very fascinating because actually this morning I was speaking with uh, Professor Alan Castell from UCLA about memory. Um, he's an expert in, uh, in memory, particularly in, uh, you know, in ageing, um, written a book about, uh, you know, successfully ageing. And one of the one of the primary things, the best things you can go out and do to have a sharp uh, memory um, as it changes um, in, in in adult age, in older age, is to go out and have vitality, um, as as you call it. He he spoke about being active, uh, active and engaged. You know, on a physical level, not necessarily exercise, but just being physically active. Um, you know, and obviously that, that does involve, you know, moving your body. Um, and the other one was connection, uh, which, you know, obviously is intimacy. Uh, that, that's, you know, this, this is this uh, undeniable uh, constant verging of, of, of these same concepts coming, coming together, whether it be memory or in what we're talking about, you know, well-being and, and, and uh, you know, being the best version of yourself, so to speak, you know, to rather than falling down into the, the, 
the, the black hole staying in the green zone, these things keep coming up. So it's just fascinating to kind of reflect on that, you know, uh, in, in both, both uh, this morning and, and today, the same stuff is coming up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have no doubt that there is overlap and, you know, work is really good for us if it's the right work. You know, there's a Gallup study that surveyed 95-year-old men and that's pretty old for a man. And the average age they retired was 80 years old. <laughs> so, so work, and, and there's actually evidence that shows the younger you retire, the younger you die. So, yeah. so I'll say that to people that think that, you know, retirement is the nirvana. Well, only if you want to live shorter life. <laughs> That's good news for me because I don't plan to retire. I, I, I enjoy being involved. You know, I, I like to be doing things. And, you know, to me, retirement's probably, you know, retirement from uh, paid work. But uh, I, I can't see a time where... I'm not going to be wanting to to do something, you know. I think that purpose and drive is is important. It, it is my mental health. If if I've got nothing on on a weekend, I slump, you know. I I'll get depressed real easy. Um, obviously not on a clinical level, but in terms of my mood, my mood flattens. You know, I I feel empty. I feel like you know I'm not using my time, you know, wisely and. Really, I don't even mind. Let's just catch up with some friends. Uh, you know, I've got to do some gardening. Something has to be happening. I've got to play with my kids. I've got to do something. If I'm just sitting around, um, feeling like I'm treading water, um, you know, that that that's not healthy. I don't know if if the same if the same thing is 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 occurring. You know, with gender differences or with age differences, whether whether that changes or moves, but. Um, you know, certainly for me, it, 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 it's a big thing. Is there a gender difference there? You, you're talking about obviously with, with that particular cohort of, of, of men who are 95, you know, their average retirement was what, what, what was 80. Uh, is that the yeah. same for, for um, uh, women as well? Well, I think, um, you know, traditionally women didn't work as long and uh, that's changing now, of course, but Traditionally, there were more traditional gender roles historically. Um, yes. And, uh, but I'm sure, intuitively, I just think the same thing would apply because it is, and, and it doesn't have to be, as you say, it doesn't have to be paid work. It can be charity work. It can be, you know, doing meaningful work with grandkids. Um, but it is that connection. It is getting outside and, uh, getting outside the four walls and, um, uh, you know, just having meaningful discussions. Um, there's a very, you, and you may have heard of this, there's a, a very good book, which and, and associated TED Talk by a guy called um, Johan Hari, and it's called Lost Connections. And, um, you know, he, it is brilliant because it, it really challenges this whole notion of depression being you know, a deficiency in serotonin and you top up serotonin and everything's fine. And that was certainly my case as well because I tried, of course, all those, all those drugs. And for some people, for some people, it can play a really important role. So I don't say you dismiss it, but it's not the whole picture by any means. And, um, and as you know, in his book, he really, he really outlines the evidence about how disconnection from meaningful work, disconnection from meaningful relationship, disconnection from nature, contribute to poor mental health and uh 
I think intuitively we know that, but, you know, he then lists some pretty compelling stories and studies that support that. I think you're absolutely right, um, and, and medication shouldn't be dismissed. Um, having uh, having an appreciation of of you know both the environment and what what modern medicine can can do. I think there's a, there's a a, um, a professor. I think it's uh, uh, Joanna Moncrief who talks about medication as a psychiatrist, uh, and she, I think, in a very clever way, talks about it. Um, as a drug model rather than as a um, a disease model, and, and and the drug model idea, uh, uh, well, the, the disease model of giving medication for depression is that there's a disease and you go out and give the medicine to to, to fix the disease. The drug model goes out and says uh, we're going to use a drug that's a mind altering drug, and we're going to try and shift one's mood one's experience using the effects of drugs and so we can apply this with with quite quite great um uh, uh appreciation that there's going to be a shift in you know the the um altering of the mind and you know we're going to take some guesses about how that might look um and so there's an upper and there's a downer or you know there's a a, a depressant and a stimulant is how she talks about it and, and depending on one's clinical profile or how they're presenting, we're going to give a stimulant or, or, or a depressant. So it's a, it's a drug model that she is kind of um, referring to. And I think, you know, there, there, there's some merit in looking at it in that way. If someone is feeling really, really, um, you know, low, uh, there are times where, uh, you know, a stimulant can go out and be quite quite useful um, to try and assist them out. And so she talks about, you know, more acute periods and, and adding particular drugs for shorter periods rather than longer term periods. And she has some compelling evidence in, in, in her book. So, you know, Joanna Moncrief, fantastic work that, um, you know, uh, I think she's certainly looked at, you know, meta-analyses and, and the like, but, um, you know, I, I think there's an environmental factor that you you're you're certainly suggesting that has you know a much greater um, compelling contribution to the story of depression or any other um, you know mental health different difficulties. And I, and I think it's um, unfortunately it's become a bit of a default response when people go to GPs and you know talk about you know feeling flat and not being able to sleep, that the default is, well, I'll prescribe an antidepressant. Um, and that may not be the right thing to do. Um, and then, as you know, that book of uh, Lost Connections, they talk about, well, sometimes people have legitimate problems, which is why they're not feeling great. You know, it's not, it's a, it's a legitimate response to what's going on. And yeah. I love the story um, in that book about... <laughs> Cambodia and you know they first went there promoting Prozac when it first came out and <laughs> and one of the local doctors says oh well, we've got that we've got a, we've got a cow and uh, <laughs> the American psychiatrist said what do you mean what do you mean we've got a cow and they explained that um, you know they had this farmer who worked in rice paddies who tragically traveled a mine and and you know blew off his foot and lower limb and he could no longer work in the rice paddy. So he was really 
depressed. Um, he couldn't support his family, couldn't do anything. And so the villagers got round and just brainstormed and said, well, what about if we got you a cow? And that way you could milk the cow, you could sit on a stool and milk the cow. And, and so that's what they tried to do. So they milked the cow. The guy then had a sense of purpose and was able to solve what was a really significant problem in his life. And so the cow was the antidepressant. <laughs> because it solved a legitimate problem. <laughs> a prescription of a cow. I'm going to uh, prescribe you a cow. Go to the chemist and um, we'll pick you up a cow. But it, but, it, but it's interesting. It's very hard. I think the hardest job in the world is for GPs. They're, they're, there's so much expectation on, you know, I'm here for a service and, and the way that we've traditionally, I think, used um, uh, the, the GP service is, you know, a crises model. Um, and, and, and it goes out and kind of says, I'm not well, make me well, you know, give me some antibiotics. And in some sense, uh, there's an expectation of I'm not, my mood is low, give me my mood tablet. Um, and it's hard to prescribe purpose or it's hard to prescribe connection. You know, it's hard to, you know, prescribe, uh, uh, you know, vitality, you know, you've got to go and, and kind of work on those. Um, you know, I think there's a great, great, um, there's great research in uh, contextual, uh, one of my passions is contextual behavioral science. And, you know, we, we know we can make animals depressed, but, you know, put a rat in a sock. You don't let it kind of uh, move. Give it food, give it water, give it all the other bits and pieces. But if you take its mobility away, what do you think it starts feeling? Mm, yeah. Do we give it medication or do we take the sock off? <laughs> That's right. That's right. And you were talking before about prescribing, and I think what a what a really healthy development is, which really happened primarily in the UK, was something called social prescribing. So what a, a group of GPs found was that, surprise, surprise, a lot of the issues revolved around people being isolated and not having friends to talk to. And so they started prescribing them to go to community groups, to work on community gardens, to interact with people on a project on a regular basis and, um, you know, had really great results, really great results. So I love that concept of social prescribing. <laughs> it's kind of like the men's shed, you know, men, men yeah, are having exactly, a tough, exactly. tough time, you know, once a week, twice a week, whatever they choose, they go over to shed, they bring some stuff over, there's some tools, they have a yarn with a couple of mates, you know, they... They don't have to go out and talk about how they're feeling. They, they, they fix some things, sand some things, paint some things, chop some things. You know, a lot of men like to do that with, you know, work with their hands. You know, you walk away feeling better, you know, and yeah. it's like, oh, I can't wait to go back and have a chat with Pete next week. <laughs> well, I have my own version of men's shed, but I'm hopeless with tools, hopeless with things like that. So my men's shed, I've been in an investment group for, for um, over 20 years with, 14 guys and, um, you know, we rotate around each person's home once per month. But it's a continuity thing and it's been amazing. And, and we talk a little bit about shares and stuff. But it's primarily a social thing, you know, just talking about stuff. And um, uh, we've had people go through divorces and depression and physical ailments and one is really quite disabled at the moment on you know kidney dialysis and this sort of thing 
and it's been a mainstay in our lives and um, it, it serves exactly the same function as the men's shed but without the tools. <laughs> it's always felt to me like, and I know there's a lot of research uh, in this space as well that, that says the same, you know, in older age, you know, as, as people um, genuinely become disconnected because of, you know, loss, death, um, you know, geographical changes and the like, uh, there is a strong correlation between, you know, ageing and, you know, um, levels of depression or, or, or um, you know, reported depression rates. Uh, I'm convinced that it, it's a measure of loneliness. Um, you know, it's a measure of disconnection uh, that when we connect people to, to, together, um, and I know that, that the, the intent of a lot of nursing homes is, is, is to do so, um, but it's certainly not easy to, 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 to just go out and, 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 and do that because there's obviously, you know, many other challenges that, that, that bring someone into that sort of environment. Um, so, you know, that connection space with its shares, you know, my one's fishing. I love fishing. You know, and as you say, you talk. You don't talk much about shares. Well, we don't catch many fish. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> not the point, is it? <laughs> no, no. You know, wife says, "How was fishing?" I was like, "Oh, it was great." You know, you catch, you know, catch what? <laughs> <laughs> well, we say we're not there for fishing because we don't catch anything. Eh? Maybe, maybe that's how it works. <laughs> So maybe there's a space for social uh, uh, prescribing here, here in Australia. Maybe we can do something around that. There is. And, and through my work with Are You OK, I've become aware in Australia of something called the Coalition to End Loneliness. And it's a group of charities and universities around Australia that are banding together to look at policies to help connect people together again. And it really follows off... Um, you know, what happened in the UK where they actually have a Minister for Loneliness and that person is specifically about trying to address that disconnection that um, causes so much psychological disorder. And, uh, you know, I, th I think there's we, we can't um, assume that it will fix itself. And so I'm, it is fantastic this group is set up and I've met the, um, you know, the scientific um director of the group and and so they're really looking at um evidence from around the world what works but what doesn't and looking at strategies and resources and groups already out there for different age groups different demographics and i and i think that is part of it is thinking about okay if you're a middle-aged man and uh, you're single well this could be the appropriate place for you if you're you know early 30s woman and all your friends are having babies but you're not even married, this could be for you. And, and just really thinking about helping people to find, um, you know, something that is suitable for their life stage and life interests. Um, so, yeah, you know, there is acknowledgement by a lot of charities that this is an important social issue and um, there's certainly a determination to do something about it. Certainly, a lot of the uh, youngsters that I see, and I don't don't see too many young young uh, because it's not my my uh, forte. Uh, there's better psychologists out there to see see the um, you know teenagers, but the ones I've seen, you know, are often you know feel excluded. They feel on the outer. You know that that's 
predominantly their, their, their presenting issue. You know, mum and dad come along and they say, you know, Billy or Sarah are depressed, but, um, you know, we, 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 we quite often, um, not always, but we quite often see that there's a, you know, very much a social component there. Um, you know, I, I'd be hard hard um, to, to, to recall a situation where, where it wasn't. So you know, there's a lot to say about that. So was that called the Coalition of Loneliness? Is that what you call it? Coalition to End Loneliness. To End, to end Loneliness. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. They've got a website, so, you know. If you yeah, I'll be that. looking that up. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it's it's put together to to I suppose try and inform policy to to try and yeah, inform very much so. So it's 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 charities and um, academics and uh, universities have all pooled together to work on it. Yeah, wow! I would definitely be looking at that. I've I've never heard of it, so love to uh, love to know more about it. So the work that you're doing now, um, can you talk about that a little bit in terms of you know who you've worked with and 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 how how I suppose your 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 program, you know, what it focuses on and and how you see it sort of rolling out in the organisational setting. Yeah, um, yeah. So I I really like to, I guess, see as an outcome of teams that are cohesive, teams where people play to their strengths, teams where people feel supported. And one of the exercises that I actually run is to ask people to reflect on, you know, a great team they've been in. And it could have been Year 9 Netball or footy or, you know, working with McDonald's or this role or a previous role. But when special things happen in that team might not have been easy could have been you know limitations in resources and all that sort of stuff but still special things happen and i asked them you know what's one or two words that would describe what was unique about that situation and it doesn't matter in what format i do whether it's working with charity or with a bank or with a insurance company or a private hospital group Always the same things come up, you know, it's things like, you know, we had each other's back, we had fun. Um, Going through hardship? We had had complementary strengths. Um, You know, we had a common purpose and mission. Um, It wasn't easy, but we worked things out, you know, we were resourceful. And so it's how people interact and support each other that are the critical elements. And so this whole area... It has been now coined a term which is called team psychological safety. And what that means is that there's strong interpersonal trust and respect and people feel comfortable being themselves and they also feel that they can take moderate risks to solve problems, you know, show, um, um, uh, what's the word, um, initiative to solve problems themselves and know that if it goes wrong that they won't be blamed for it you know they're just trying things out and um and so this area has gained a huge amount of profile for example google um started this project aristotle it was called where they sought to identify what was their best teams and they started this in 2014 they looked at 180 teams around the world, look at 250 different parameters for each of those 180 teams, and that's what they end up concluding, that the number one contributor of their best teams was when there was team psychological safety. 
that was the, the foundation. They identified five team norms. So number one was psychological safety. Number team, number two was dependability, so they could rely on each other. Someone says they're going to do something, they'd do it. Number three was clarity. There was clear expectations about what was required. Number four was meaning, knowing that they believed in the purpose of their organisation. And number five was impact, which we talked about their team had impact. They felt their team made a difference. And, um, but by far the most important was psychological safety because if you didn't have that, you couldn't have discussions about dependability. You couldn't have robust discussions about clarity. You know, that was the underpinning thing. And so my message now is that, you know, this care and support, this psychological safety is foundational for high-performing future-ready teams because there's so much change, there's so much evolution. We don't have, you know, a roadmap. We have to evolve. We have to learn. There's ambiguity. And we can't do that if we're supported in a group, if we're in a tribe. But um, if we feel isolated and alone, we don't feel confident. Of course, there's a few people that, that, you know, do thrive in that situation, but the vast majority of us really benefit by being in a supportive group. And so, you know, the first, in, in my work, the first thing is about how individuals can be in the green zone themselves, and that's following the VIP approach that I talked about before and choosing little daily rituals that top up each of those three cups. The next part is, you know, what can I do to create this psychologically and caring team that is the foundation to high performance? And, you know, it's, it's not rocket science. It's getting together. It's knowing each other better. It's, um, you know, doing things together. It's celebrating wins. It's uh, supporting each other when things don't work out. But believe it or not, are you okay did a survey early, early this year and found that the 23% of Australian employees, that's almost one in four, they feel nothing is done at all to connect them to their colleagues, not to have a coffee together, not to have, you know, lunches at a restaurant, not to have celebrations about wins, nothing, <laughs> nothing. Um, and this is having a big impact on psychological health, but also performance and productivity. It's all linked. It's all linked. It's fascinating because it's not only just connection, it's also the quality of that connection. It, it, it's to be able to have, uh, you know, that psychological safety. It's almost like that vulnerability to, to be able to be me or to be able to express myself, to be able to be heard, um, to be able to fail, um, you know, to, to, to be supported in, in, in that time. And, and, and a lot of that kind of occurs by having these opportunities to connect. So whether it be, and I know here in, in the clinic, we've spent an awful lot of time and energy and, and at great cost as well in, in how we've designed uh, our, our rooms and our group room to have, you know, a lunchroom where it's very spacious and everyone can sit down. We go out for, you know, lunch or breakfast or, or afternoon drinks, you know, every three weeks. You know, we have group supervision together. We have individual supervision you know, we, 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 we try and, you know, do, do something on Melbourne Cup, 
you know, and, and really no one's interested in, in, in horse racing here, but it was just nice to get together and have a chat and a, a bite, some sandwiches and like, uh, it, it's the quality, but, but creating opportunities uh, to, to, I suppose, nurture those relationships, to find out about each other, to, to take a genuine interest in, in, in each other. And I suppose by default, you end up saying things like, are you okay? Definitely, definitely. And you know people better, so you, you can observe changes. You know, you can observe if mm. people are moodier than normal or less reliable, um, more dishevelled, and, and, and you know when to ask, are you okay? So, um, you know, the things you describe are, you know, just 100% on the money of, of creating a connecting team, but sadly there's at least 23% of people that don't feel that any of that has done nothing. But but it is interesting because uh, I I've had to consciously um, you know work on that to to mm-hmm. to put things in place and to sit down and think about it you know despite working as a psychologist and with a team of psychologists it's not something that's come naturally it mm-hmm. it's been something that that you kind of mechanically do because you go you know oh this is this is what you should do or this is a good thing to do you know and and. I'm sure that, you know, sometime in the past, you know, there'd be staff here saying that, no, we're part of that 23%. Um, uh, you know, it, it's something that you kind of have to, I suppose, you, you know, work on and fail and then work on and fail and you work on and fail. It's a hard thing to do, yeah. yet simplistic in the same same breath. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, in the busyness of life, it thinks, oh, well, you know, we haven't got time for that sort of thing. But, um, you know, if you want to sustain success, it's it's foundational to do that. Is, is that what it is? Do, do, do you think it's this business thing? Like, for, what, 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 what's your gut feel? What, what, what keeps us so disconnected? Well, you know, that's an interesting... There are some there are some macro things certainly going on. You know, there's certainly more people living alone than ever before, and um, and so there used to be, I guess, a much greater sense of connection in in home life, which there isn't now. And so we probably need it more in work life than we have before. Um, there there is um, you know more divorce than there was before. Um, but but there is this you know and I put an in inverted commas busyness, but it, but it is doing things on our you know on our phones and and alerts which have this it's activity but I'm not sure it's really effectiveness and um, I th- I think that um, it's interesting that. <laughs> There's a, a guy called Nia Eel, and he wrote a book called Hooked, and it was about how Facebook and and Instagram and the like created a product which hooked people and kept them coming back and involved, and and it is an actual model that you know do, does make that happen. Um, but now he's just come out with a book called. Uh, indistractable <laughs> which is how not to be distracted by all these um, things that can distract us and you know be it apps or email or what have you 
But one of the big things, and this is, I guess, somewhat surprising thing to me, one of the first things he tells us that he tells is the solution is start to get comfortable doing nothing <laughs> because we've, we've sort of lost the capacity to daydream. We've lost the capacity to do nothing. You know, you look on a train. People used to, you know, I go over the train quite regularly over the Harbour Bridge. No one looks at the harbour. <laughs> They're all busy looking at their phone. And um, so we have be- had this level of resorting to doing things because we have become uncomfortable in just being with ourselves, having that quiet time. And I think we have to re-engage with that and re-nurture that. Do you think any of it could be our affluence? You know, I, I kind of reflect on, on it in terms of, you know, there's this individualistic type of society. And I know sort of my heritage is, is, is you know, um, Serbian and, and, you know, it's a country of uh, not deep um, poverty but reasonable poverty and, and, you know, infrastructure problems and so on. And because of that, there's so much unemployment and so people are doing nothing. Um, but by virtue of doing nothing, in some sense you end up socializing and and you you almost have to also put your resources together because if you've got very little um you've got to make that go a a longer way and that usually means pooling your 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 resources are we maybe experiencing the the side effect of of um being comfortable of affluence of 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 a first world you know, macro culture. There's definitely elements of that because, um, you know, we've never, Australia is the most fortunate country in the world on any dimension, whether it's income, housing, social services, public health, um, you know, the list goes on. We are truly a blessed country. And yet there are many affluent people that are very unhappy and there are many affluent kids that are even more unhappy and I think that that has been a curse where people are given too much and have had problems solved for them um, and the you know the, the research around resilience sort of shows this that that we have to you know work things out ourselves we have to make mistakes we have to learn from we have to respond and this helicopter parenting, where parents have tried to solve all the problems, make it easier, drive kids everywhere, take them places, make it safe, ironically doesn't do that because they've lost their capacity um, to solve problems and to build resilience. Not not entirely, but there's just a trend and, and, and there is, you know, growing levels of psychological distress in, in younger people and, and I'm sure that's a contributor. I'm sure it is. One of the things that's always impressed me uh, about, uh, in particular, um, uh, our farmers, uh, you know, people who live more rurally, um, is is this experience. And I don't know if this is just, you know, my thoughts, whether it's antidotal or, or, or whether it's genuine, but they just seem so much more resilient, you know, that, that uh, you know, I don't know whether it's, you know, you t- have a little cut 
someone just brushes it off because they've had a thousand cuts in the past as where someone else may be, you know, in, in, in a city gets a cut and they're worried about an infection. They need to go have a look at, you know, what if, what happens if it's going to get a swell up or something, this kind of resilience of rolling with the punches or she'll be right. And, and, and I'm not suggesting that, uh, you know, that's the attitude to take, but there's probably a lot of situations where the she'll be right attitude is probably the right attitude that, 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 yeah, that's going to go yeah. out and, you know, make you a more buoyant human being. Yeah. Well, I remember, I just remember speaking to a ophthalmic surgeon and he said something very similar to what you said. He said that he loves, you know, working on farmers because they understand that shit happens. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, 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 you know, one of the things <laughs> be perfect, but farmers just know that life isn't perfect. And um, so, you know, he loves working with them because they do have that level of um, adapting and, you know, okay, this has happened, let's, let's work it out sort of thing. I believe there's a there's a study that looked at some Scandinavian countries around uh, pain um, management facilities, and, and and they had, you know, they've got a great service over there with um, you know every multidisciplinary you know um, uh, hat under a under one roof um, in terms of you know doctors, surgeons, psychologists, psychiatrists, pain management experts, physios, and so on, and. They even gave extra time, is my understanding, um, to to annual leave if you've got a chronic pain um, injury. And uh, uh, from the study, my understanding is that they've got the worst outcomes um, uh, because, and the theory is because the there's not an acceptance model of the you know that's just what it is. Uh, the the idea is no, no, we can treat it, we can fix it, we can make it better. And and the, the fact is you you can't make a lot of things better. Um, and, and, and the sooner we kind of say, you know, I, uh, my, my ankle is going to hurt forever um, and I'm just going to have to walk with a really, really sore ankle, um, you know, the, the better because we can still give it seven, eight, nine surgeries and it's probably going to make it worse over time um, rather than saying, you know, I've now got a six out of 10 pain in my ankle and I'm just going to have to do the best that, that, that I can. and this is horrible and unfortunate and, and, and very upsetting. Um, yeah. but, I, but I've got to kind of somehow, somehow try and learn to live with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that, um, is, is very real. Um, one of the, one of the other elements that, um, I've been looking at recently, um, and it really came from my third book where I surveyed 4,000 people and asked them, you know, what helped best in your recovery. And it came, I came up with a, a model which is called as an acronym I care. And I is how you identify people. The C is for compassion, how you put yourself in their shoes, how you ask, are you okay? How you encourage action. The A is for access experts, you know, how you find good GPs, good psychologists. The R is for revitalizing work, which um, means in most cases people are better off being at work than being at home. Even mm. if it means cutting back in duties or workload, but they're better off being there. And then the E is for exercise. And um, so, yeah, you know, so we've put together um, one of the things that I recently did was put together an online pr- learning program um, which takes people through this in 20 minutes about how best to 
be more confident to help someone in distress. And um, what's really, I guess, heartening is that, you know, 94% of people have gone through this 20-minute course say they feel more confident. And there's also, you know, associated wallet card and booklet and that sort of thing because, you know, as I mentioned right at the start, there is this accelerating change and volatility in the workplace and we must be able to have the skills to be able to reach out and part of it is asking are you okay but that's only one part first you you know know, have to know how to identify but then you also have to know how to guide them in the right direction how to get that help and um, in my experience most people want to help but they don't feel confident in how to help and um, and so we've recently completed trials uh, or pilots with um, the University of Sydney and Ernst and & Young and we're really optimistic. We just launched it um, just uh, two weeks ago in Melbourne and um, we won uh, two platinum awards and a, a gold award in, in um, a learning, a Learnex award sort of thing. And, you know, I think this is part of our solution as well. Technology does cause issues, but it can be part of the solution as well if people can learn the right way on how to assist someone else. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Can you can you uh, tell us where we can uh, find iCare? What, what, what's the uh, website? Yeah. Or yeah, well, if um, I can give you um, probably a good uh, URL to find information on that. So if you go to factorc.com dot au forward slash we care um you'll find uh information about that program and and how it comes together so that's factor c where c is for change dot com dot au forward slash we care um Fantastic. Graham, I could uh, speak with you all day. I could go for another six hours. I, I wish we had the opportunity, um, but I know that uh, we're running out of time. How can people find out more about your, your books? Where can they get them from? How can they find out about your work and, and where they can engage you know, your, your team, your services to, to look at their um, you know, workplace and the like? Yeah, well, probably... Um a good place is my website, which is uh, grahamcowan.com.au, G-R-A-M-E-C-O-W-A-N.com.au. Um, and that's where I have, you know, quite a few resources that people can download. I also, um, with my book, Back from the Brink, I have a website which is called IamBackFromTheBrink.com. And I share on there um, a chapter which is the survey of 4,000 people, which shows where I came up with this eye care model to help people. And so it talks through what 4,000 people said most helped them in their recovery. And so, yeah, that's, um, that, that's a good resource, which is at, at com. And I'm also very active on uh, LinkedIn as well. That's probably the best social media platform to find me or ask me questions. 
Fantastic. Sounds like a number of places to, to go to that will be more than uh, worthwhile. Before we finish off, I need to ask you one more question. Um, and I hate to put you on the spot like this, but uh, if, if, if there's someone out there that, that, that is struggling, you know, they're having some workplace challenges or, you know, they've lost a little bit of meaning, they're having some, some uh, you know, difficulties, whether it's something that they've sort of experienced, you know, previously or it's their first time around, what advice would you, would you give them in, in, in a general sort of sense? Well, I guess the first thing would be to share it with someone that you trust and uh, that's, you know, they may or may not have learned that, but that's a really fundamental thing. And many men are very, very poor at doing that. You know, many men think, oh, I've got to tough this out, work it out myself. So that's the first thing. Um, and, and the second thing is don't be afraid to ask for help. You know, whether it's asking that person you trust or asking your GP or your psychologist just ask, you know, taking one step, one step. And, uh, um, but if that's not successful, take another step, try something new because we don't always find the perfect GP or psychologist first time. Um, so don't be afraid if you know, it doesn't work out the first time to, to keep looking. But, um, and, and I guess the third element, and this is just really from my own experience, is to, if you're not moving, start moving, uh, you know, to be walking at least for 30 minutes every day, brisk walk. Um, because Mayo Clinic research shows that if you do that, your mood will be better up to 12 hours later by having that 30-minute brisk walk every day. And things can seem so much better when your mood is better, <laughs> when it's a bit higher. Wise words, wise words. Thank you very much, Graham. I, I, I feel uh, very privileged to be able to pick your brain and, and, and hear about your story and the amazing work that, that you're doing. So thank you very much and look forward to maybe having you on later on for, for uh, you know, further discussion on all, all these amazing you know, pieces of research that are, that are coming through and, and the fantastic work that you're doing. Thanks very much. It's really um, appreciate the chance to speak with you and your listeners and uh, really admire the work you're doing. So well done. Thanks, Graham. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review, subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.